Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. This episode features themes of emotional abuse, drug use, and murder. Some names in this story have been changed to protect anonymity. Listener discretion is advised. What's the ultimate end game there? Control. This is Method and Madness, Episode 39, Hero versus Villain, Surviving Dirty John. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. The body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. Hiker stumbled upon the nude body of a local... Police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call from... The victim said she was stalked for five years. Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Method and Madness. Previously, on Method and Madness, we met John Meehan, a.k.a. Dirty John, who had a history of criminal behavior, drug use, manipulation, and, as it turned out, sexual promiscuity. We talked about coercive control, which is akin to brainwashing, and is a strategic pattern of behavior designed to exploit, control, create dependency, and dominate and how John used several tools to lure his victims, manipulate, and terrorize them. John was now married to his second wife, Deborah Newell, a warm, loving woman with a successful interior design business. They had a whirlwind romance, their wedding just two months after they met, and Deborah thought she had met her soulmate, the man she'd been waiting for, but little did she know. I'm strong. I can deal with a lot. I know who I am. And yes, did I ignore red flags? Of course I did. Did I do things wrong? Of course I did. But at the same time, it happened. And for moving forward, you know, I have to learn. I have to learn all these things. I've had to learn gaslighting. I've had to learn what sociopaths are, what psychopaths, narcissists, you know, I've had to learn curse control so that I, I'm aware of what's going on out there and hopefully help others and teach others about this. What do you do when you're a master manipulator, a predator? You hunt. Hunt for prey that will serve you in more ways than one. Financially, they need to be well off enough that they can support you, and then some. If you're promiscuous, they have to serve your sexual needs. Shelter. Finding prey with a comfortable home, complete with the amenities, the cars. Now, once you've secured your prey, it's time to learn everything about them. How will they benefit you? Store that data in a safe place. You'll need it later to use against them. It's crucial to earn their trust. You can do this by showing affection, showering compliments, doing small favors. You'll have a lot of pretending to do here. Make the prey think they're the most important thing to you. They're not, but in order to survive, the prey needs to believe it. That's okay, you're a masterful liar. Then, slowly take everything away from your prey. Those that will protect them, their resources, get them to trust you. Rely on only you. You're the hero. The only one that really cares. If they start to question you, don't back down. Turn it around on them. That's right. They must have misunderstood. Now, when your prey least expects it, take over. They're yours now. And everything they have is yours. You've earned it. You deserve it. They are nothing. A sucker. And if things don't go according to plan... 
If there are distractions or the prey starts to walk away or get their voice back, then that's when the real terror needs to begin. Um, so when someone is trying to tra- uh, trauma bond you, what they're doing, there are seven steps. And the first one is love bombing. And then we go to trust dependency. And then three, then they go to hypercriticism. And then four is gaslighting. And then you're pretty much giving up control is number five. And six is you're really questioning yourself. So you sort of lose yourself. And then seven is you get addicted to the high of how they are. Uh, the high of how it felt. And so you want that. So there are seven um, phases that usually someone that's a sociopath, psychopath, narcissist, whatever, when they're trying to gain you and control you, that's what they're doing. John Meehan had grown up mastering the art of the con. He'd been married once, had two children, and lived a lie. He'd been to prison, lost his nursing license, and was addicted to prescription drugs. He may have had a role in his father's death, or at least speeding up the process of his death, as his father lie in hospice. By 2014, he had nothing more to lose. He was fresh out of jail for threatening the Laguna Beach woman he dated, a crime he insisted he didn't do, and now... He was only interested in his own survival. But why was John a manipulator? What was it that caused him to be so callous, selfish, dare I say, evil? How did he get to this place? There's a lot more to unwrap here. Let's dive in. If you think about empaths, they are these kind people. They are empathetic. And then narcissists are like, controlling. They're the complete opposite. And so when you're, you kind of want balance sometimes. And like, if you're an empath and someone's like telling someone like, and speaking up for you and like, like using your voice that you should be using, you're like, oh, that's so nice. I don't have to use my voice. And I don't really like to use my voice (laughs) sometimes. Now that you have an understanding of how John Meehan works, you can imagine him on the Our Time dating app, desperately scrolling through profiles looking for his next victim. A mature woman with a successful business living in Orange County? Jackpot. And all that attention he was paying Deborah, always asking questions and showing interest in her life, that was actually his way of getting a peek into her world. The data mining, which we talked about in the previous episode, he was storing the information she was providing so willingly, locking it away for a rainy day. The love bombing, the constant compliments that Deborah felt so good hearing that was sweeping her off of her feet. As a villain, that was John's superpower. He always had it at the ready, disarming his victim with his kindness, his affection, his romantic gestures and sense of humor. By the time he met Deborah, he was an expert in the field. Then there was the isolation. John was telling Deborah that her kids were liars, greedy, using her, creating that dependency so that it's John she trusted. His narrative became hers. And that break-in, the woman who got into Deb's home and wore her clothes, John was the hero that day. He saved her. What if he hadn't been there? And now he was installing cameras everywhere. It was a new year, 2015, and the newlyweds weren't exactly experiencing marriage bliss. Deborah still hadn't told her children that she was a newlywed. There was no good time to break that news. She was uncertain how she'd ever be able to explain it. Not to mention, what Deborah didn't know at the time was that a lot of the behaviors her husband was demonstrating, slurred speech, 
slow, lethargic walking, appearing a little distant, were due to his drug use. Through Deborah's eyes, what she was perceiving was her husband taking her out to eat, paying for dinners, all an illusion to hide the fact that the guy actually had nothing. He wasn't working. He was lounging around all day, ordering takeout, but insisting he was merely taking a break from the grind of his career as an in-demand doctor. Besides, he needed to renew his anesthesiology license. He was driving Deborah's Tesla, and she was paying for his day-to-day expenses. She'd even taken him to Brooks Brothers to get a new wardrobe, since, you know, all of his stuff was stolen when he was in Iraq. But he still wore those dirty scrubs most of the time. Gaslighting John was utilizing gaslighting, a term that originates from the 1938 Patrick Hamilton play, Gaslight. In the play, which was later adapted into two movies, a husband uses tactics on his wife to make her think she's slowly going insane. One of the tactics being to convince her that the gaslight in their apartment isn't dimming, it's just her imagination. Psychologists use the term gaslighting to refer to a specific type of manipulation, where the manipulator is trying to get someone else to question their own reality, memory, or perceptions. So phrases like, oh, come on, I never said that, or you must be misremembering, or you're crazy, are used to manipulate. And then the victim in turn questions themselves. In the long run, it may lead to difficulty in making decisions, always coming back to the gaslighter. What would they think if I did this? It's not like Deborah didn't bring up the money issue. She did. But anytime she suggested that John buy a car for himself or pay for any other expense, he'd become defensive, avoidant. He insisted he had nearly a million dollars tied up, but it was inaccessible. And then he'd convince Deborah that he would help her manage her own finances. Made sense to her. Deborah was responsible and disciplined with her income, putting aside a certain amount each week, putting cash away for a rainy day, and John talked her into giving him $100,000 of her hard-earned money so that he could put it in the bank. It was safer there than in the safe in her home. And besides, a woman had recently broken in, all the more reason to secure the cash elsewhere, i.e., where John could access it when he wanted. Deborah noticed that some of the cash went missing from the bank's safe deposit box. John had an excuse, of course, assuring her he'd put it elsewhere, but would now put it back. The list of discrepancies that Deborah was noticing had grown. When she'd bring them up to John, he'd only get angry and turn it around on her. Injuries that he said he got while stationed in Iraq, well, now they were sustained from a basketball game. Details that changed were just Deb's misunderstanding or her children poisoning her. And then, to make up for the anger or the blaming, John would smooth things over with more love bombing. Isolation. The person like, oh, this person isn't right for you. This person is saying mean things to you. This person's doing this. Are you sure you want to be friends with them? Um, And he was saying to my mom, like, oh, your kids just want your money. Your kids are doing this. Your kids don't love you and so on. So, you know, he was really trying to get my mom isolated and alone where he's able to have more control over her in this situation. The kids were doing John no good. Liz hated him, and he knew it. She was the biggest threat to his con. Her siblings were onto him, and therefore none of them served any purpose. They threatened that the curtain would be pulled back. His only choice was to isolate Deborah from the five people who were looking out for her best interest, her four kids and her nephew. 
She wasn't talking to Liz or Tara much. John had successfully alienated them, poisoning Deb's mind, making her question if her daughters were after her money. She didn't actually believe that. But remember, with this form of manipulation, the manipulator starts replacing your own thoughts and inner monologue with theirs. If there was Anyone that Deborah needed to worry about, it was the man she was sharing her bed with. There's a movie cliche that always makes me roll my eyes. I call it The Box of Secrets. How in suspenseful scenes of movies, the protagonist will be snooping, or maybe just innocently cleaning, under a bed or in a closet, and they uncover a hidden box left by their roommate or spouse or some other relative. They look over their shoulder see if anyone is watching. Then they take a deep breath, start to open the box, extra suspense points if it's locked and they have to figure out how to open it. In some instances, they may put the box down, walk away from it, grab a soda as the viewer watches them mull it over. Should I or shouldn't I? Finally, they give in to the temptation and open the box, only to find out all the secrets their roommate or spouse or relative has been hiding. They have a twin that died in childhood, and they've taken on their identity, or they have photos that reveal they're a serial killer. I used to think it was lazy film writing. The box of secrets was a device to let the protagonist and the audience in on everything in less than a minute. And in some cases, it does feel like lazy writing. However, the reality is that the box of secrets can exist in real life. In March 2015, Deborah was home alone when she came across a letter in a closet. It was signed by John, and it detailed some of the experiences he'd had in prison. Along with that letter, she found several other things in a box, diplomas of John's. She took photos of everything, put them back where she found them, and just like in the movies, John pulled into the driveway. It was that heart-racing close call where you pray she gets everything put back before she's caught. Before he walked in, Deborah managed to grab the small safe where she'd stored some of her cash. She stowed it away in a suitcase. When John entered, she made up an excuse about having to go into the office and took the suitcase and left. She planned to go to the bank and put the money into an account that John didn't know about, savings that she'd had from before they even met. She went to her office to count the money just in time to receive a text. The villain knew something. Was there someone in the house you need to tell me about? Deb didn't text back. The next text. Now I understand. What's his name? Deborah's heart was in her throat. She didn't know what he was talking about, but it was scaring her, and she didn't respond back. Then he sent her this. You missed the other camera I had put in. Deborah didn't know what he had seen, and she was just now learning that her husband was watching her. She knew she needed to count the cash, and when she did, there was $44,000 missing. She described that this is the moment where the realization hit her that John was a stranger. She called him to see what his texts meant, and he told Deb that after she left the house, he'd watched the footage from that hidden camera. He watched Deb take the safe, but he explained... The only reason he'd watched it was that he thought an intruder had come in and taken the safe. It was all just a misunderstanding, of course. Around this time, John was back to working, or at least he said he was. And as he'd leave the house in his scrubs, driving off in Deb's car, he was doing God knows what. In the Dirty John TV series, Deborah is depicted as naive. But it wasn't as simple as that. She wasn't blind to everything that was going on. She wasn't in ignorant bliss. She was beginning to look into John's past and uncovering some lies. And the other aspect of this that we continue to revisit is that Deborah was a victim. Over the next several weeks, by looking through documents and searching online, she found signs that John was not a doctor, 
and his nursing license had been suspended years earlier. He wasn't working in the medical field. In 2002, he had assaulted a police officer in Michigan. Remember, he'd escaped that ambulance and kicked a cop in the face. She found out a lot about the time when John was going through his divorce with his first wife, Tanya, how all of those drug vials had been found in his home and how the police investigation had begun, and that he had been arrested and received a suspended sentence for his threats to Tanya. He actually had two sisters. He'd only told Deb about one. And he'd been threatening a woman he had dated prior to Deborah. And perhaps most alarming at the time was Deb finding out that John may have played a part in his brother's death. That's right. John Meehan had an older brother, he told Deborah that he tried to get him help from addiction, but that he overdosed. There was more to it. John had been mailing his brother prescription drugs without instructions on how to use them. To top it all off, Deborah was watching John inject himself with testosterone, something he said was to help his kidneys. She also watched him take prescription pain medications for his back or whatever else was ailing him from his time in Iraq. There was a part of Deborah that hoped she got it wrong, that maybe what she was learning about her husband, the man that she fell so hard for, maybe hopefully there was a logical explanation for some of these secrets. When you're in a relationship, in like a trauma-bonded relationship, I know my mom talked about this a little bit, you uh, get addicted. And so you have to... Uh, like cut, well, like how you deal with addiction, it varies for everyone. You know, some people work best with like cutting things off cold Turkey. Um, sometimes people work best with just like gradually getting out of it or getting to their low point. Throughout it all, Deborah was still standing by her husband. She saw his flaws, his vulnerability, in some ways, it softened her to him that he was human, he was imperfect, and the people-pleaser in her, that fixer, wanted to be there for him. He was still doing all of those wonderful things for her. He was there for her. He was holding her hand through any tough days she had. She wasn't sure what to believe. Was he this funny man that was so good to her, or was he a liar, or was he both? Deborah did eventually bring some of this up to John, some of the findings, including his criminal history. What do you think a liar, a manipulator, a con man would say when confronted with the consequences of their own actions? Mistaken identity, of course. It was another John Meehan. It's a popular name, Deborah, come on. And she wanted to believe him, even with that doubt lingering in the back of her mind. In the last episode, we saw Deb's son-in-law had hired a PI to look into John Meehan. So how was that going? Deborah's children were learning that John was never a doctor and that he had nine different social security numbers. Inside a storage unit he was renting was a refrigerator that held chloroform, and he was homeless when he met Deborah. Liz, with her mother's permission, had put a GPS tracker onto Deb's Tesla, the car that John was using every day. The data received from the tracker revealed that on some days, John never left the Balboa house. Other days, he was driving to several different doctor's offices, not staying for very long, before moving on to the next. He would also stop at random, unknown locations along the way, as well as his storage unit. It was suspected that this was John getting his drugs, maybe even selling some of them. And what Deborah didn't find out until much later was that John was also trying to sell her Tesla, behind her back, of course, and the prospective buyer was a man John had known in prison. What was he going to say if he did sell it, that it was stolen, just like all of his clothes and cars? Then, Deborah's nephew was fiercely protective of his aunt. He was a child when his father murdered his mother, Cindy. And now, he was beginning to find out more and more about John. 
He couldn't shake a comment that John had made one time about Liz that he could easily take her out. So he took all of the findings from the PI, all the proof that John was a liar, that he'd lied about everything, and he told Deborah what she had dreaded to hear, that John had in fact been in prison. He'd conned and threatened several women over the past several years, and he'd never served in Iraq. Not long after Ben had talked to Deborah, he confronted John via text that it was time to come clean. John resorted to his usual childish responses, his vague threats, his insults, even told Ben that he'd slept with his girlfriend, then proceeded to insult Ben's children. Finally, as one last dig, he revealed to Ben he was Deborah's husband. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I'm really thankful that mental health and self-care are taking more of a front seat these days. Therapy has helped me when I felt overwhelmed and needed to sort some things out. Maybe you're feeling more stressed lately or like you're struggling with work or personal relationships. However you're feeling, you deserve to be happy and to know that there is no shame in therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy. In under 48 hours, you could be communicating with a therapist by phone, live chat, or video if you're comfortable. Now is a good time to invest in yourself and see what online therapy is all about. And special offer to Method and Madness listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash method and madness. That's better com slash method and madness. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. What was the safest next step for Deborah? The easy answer, the unrealistic one, would be for her to just get out of there and never look back. If only it were that easy. Women in domestic abuse situations are at the highest risk for violence when they leave. He had never laid a hand on her, but Deborah had seen his rage. When the woman broke into Deborah's home, when a homeless man made a comment about Deborah as she and John were out on a walk, rage that scared her. What was John capable of? How could she plan this out so that he didn't hurt her or her kids? She considered filing a restraining order, but didn't. It wasn't that easy to just walk away. She was definitely afraid of the judgmental eyes she'd have on her. Oh, another failed marriage. But the terror, the not knowing what he would do next, there was no guidebook on how to navigate the situation. She knew she was acting differently around him, no matter how hard she tried to appear normal. At one point in Deborah's book, Surviving Dirty John, she says this, quote, what most people don't realize and the television drama series based on my case failed to portray accurately is that I was terrified and confused. The series, in many ways, made me out to be naive and ignorant, a repeat offender for choosing the wrong guys. The show implied that it was my fault for making poor choices. Deborah's therapist encouraged her to not be too hasty, to think things through before confronting John about everything Ben had told her. Still, Deborah was in turmoil. She started experiencing anxiety, panic attacks, and was prescribed Ativan. In another movie cliche, the protagonist is at their mailbox, thumbing through their letters, junk mail, magazines, and they come across something suspicious addressed to their partner. They open it and are so stunned by what they're reading they don't notice they're being watched. The villain is coming up behind them. One day, Deborah was getting her mail out of the mailbox when she came across a letter that was for John. The return address? A prison. She opened the envelope, scanned the letter, it was from a man that had known John in prison. They were keeping in touch? 
Suddenly, John was there, right in front of Deborah. He'd stormed out of the house, angry, and demanded to know what the fuck she was doing reading his mail. Deborah was hurt, shocked, and just wanted to hear the truth from him, and told him so. But John was ranting, telling more lies, and reprimanding her for reading his mail, a felony, denying he'd been in prison. You can literally be standing there in front of a pathological liar with the proof that they're a liar, and they will lie. They didn't speak for the rest of the day, and then Deborah got another shocking revelation. John had a large scar below his ribcage, something he claimed was from his heroism in Iraq, of course. After the confrontation over the letter from the prisoner, Deborah was looking into more of John's paperwork when she got the truth about that injury. It was self-inflicted. While in prison in 2014, John took a makeshift knife and sliced his abdomen before taking feces and rubbing it into the wound to infect it, all so he could win a trip to the ER for more drugs. Perhaps the only stroke of luck Deborah was getting in all of this was that John was soon admitted to the hospital for a bowel obstruction, something he developed after a routine outpatient procedure for his back. He was going to have to spend several weeks in the hospital, a nice respite for Deborah at a time when she was desperate to figure out what to do, both legally and safely, for herself and her family. And if you remember from the last episode, Deborah hadn't gotten around to getting a post-nup. There was a lot to get in order if she wanted to consider divorce or annulment. But John was sensing something was different, even from his hospital bed. He started threatening Deb with his text messages, threatening to send intimate photos to her family, back to his usual M.O. He'd call her, demanding she return the money she took from him, all 160000 of it, which... Of course, she hadn't. You can't steal six figures from someone who has nothing. He started sending emails, more threats, including one that implied Deborah should give him a large sum of cash if she didn't want to be in trouble for that felony of reading his mail. He was doing to Deb the same things he had done to Tanya, to the other women he dated, to the unfortunate woman in Laguna Beach that had been his most recent victim. He was using threats to get what he wanted, his desperation bobbing to the surface. He had nothing to lose. Is it surprising that he resorted to these methods? The thing about John Meehan is that his endgame, if he had one, was played poorly. We talk about him being a master manipulator, and yes, he was, but I question his prowess at this time in his life. Here's Deborah, someone who was willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. The only lifeline he really had, he'd isolated everyone else. And there he was, in his desperation, isolating that lifeline. Perhaps he thought that if she was about to leave him, a lump sum would at least get him through the next, what, year? Until he found someone else? Deborah was ignoring the texts, the emails, and getting her own affairs in order and creating a plan. She contacted an attorney who, in turn, cautioned John to end the threats, which only enraged him more. After a lot of consideration, Deborah went to the police, first in Irvine, then Laguna Beach, and finally Newport Beach. She described each interaction as a humiliating experience, with the officers showing no empathy treating her like an annoyance. When I would go to the police stations, I went to four different police stations. They looked at me like, go home, lady. (laughs) And I think, "Uh, excuse me, you don't know what's going on. And so it's it's pretty sad. It's pretty messed up, the system is. And the people that are victim blaming are so black and white. With the help of Ben and Liz, Deborah continued to uncover John's dark secrets. I know, just when you think prison pen pals and self-inflicted wounds full of feces were enough, John Meehan proves you wrong. He had written notes and printouts about various guns. 
his nickname to Deborah's surprise, Dirty John, and a short biography about Ben. John had written down his personal info. What was he planning to do with that? There was a stack of emails between John and a woman he'd once dated, or terrorized, where he threatened her with this, quote, You will leave town and do so by the end of the month. Go home to mom and dad if they will have you. You understand what I'm capable of. You don't want this. If you so much as think about sex with another, I bury you both and I will videotape it. The last guy you fucked, you will tell me who it is. You will take care of me the entire year. You will find a girlfriend and the both of you will do me. You will do this within a month. He was blackmailing her. If she gave him $845,000, this would all go away, including the threat where he'd go to the school administration where she worked and inform them she was a sex worker in an attempt to get her fired. You may wonder why John had so many of these boxo secrets. Was he really that stupid? Was he trying to get caught? A cry for help? Deb's kids, Liz particularly, thought it was like a serial killer keeping souvenirs. John didn't want to get rid of those things. He wanted to be able to relive the experiences. As Deborah has pointed out several times, a lot of this is not portrayed in the Dirty John TV series. Do you still think it was that easy for Deborah to just walk away? Look at what happened to women that went on a few dates with John Meehan. She was married to him. Whatever he was doing to women he'd merely dated, what he could do to her, both financially and physically, was way worse. He knew a lot about her. There's so many women out there that don't come forward because of this. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're keeping their mouth shut. They're ashamed. When it was nearing time for John to be released from the hospital, he begged Deborah to help him. He must have realized while playing his short game that he had nowhere to go. He was homeless, remember, so he played this card. You're my wife. I need you. I can't do this without you, and I miss you. Deb admits she had conflicting feelings. She loved her husband, and she couldn't ignore the feeling that maybe if he was finally honest with her— Maybe they could start fresh. Maybe this marriage was savable. She had to play this just right. She had the upper hand in a way, as she told John that first he had to come clean, provide an explanation for all the things she had found out. He agreed that once he was home, he would explain his side and that she'd realize all of the police reports, all the paperwork, was all wrong. Deborah picked him up from the hospital. He'd lost 40 pounds and was clearly very ill. He looked like a shell of the man that had entered the hospital weeks earlier. And he was an emotional mess, begging for her help. She put him up in a hotel and one day met with John and his lawyer, who told Deb that John was innocent. It had been Tanya, his first wife, that had set him up. It was all a misunderstanding, just as John had been saying all along. Deborah found the lawyer to be very convincing, but she started playing chess while John was playing checkers. She told him she believed him, but that she had to go slow. She rented him an apartment, allowed him to move in while still being on high alert. She had to make him think that she was giving the marriage a chance. Keep your enemies close, right? She was waiting for annulment paperwork to go through while carefully playing the role of wife. With John now saying he was diagnosed with MS, Deborah continued to show sympathy, and that summer, 2015, she bought a home in Henderson, Nevada. She'd have John move in there while she continued with her plan back in California to discreetly end the marriage. He'd be far enough away that she could do so safely, even if it meant she was supporting him financially. And she'd pop in every once in a while to give him the illusion she was still in the marriage. She made an appointment with a forensic psychologist and learned everything she could about John, including that he had all the traits 
of a psychopath. On the podcast, The First Wife, which was a deep dive into John's first wife, Tanya's story, criminal behavioral analyst Laura Richards discusses the 20 traits of a psychopath and how you assess someone by using a checklist. Going one by one through those factors, you assign a score of 0, 1, or 2 to each trait depending on the subject's personality traits, behaviors, etc. Zero meaning they don't show the trait at all. One, if they partially show the trait. And two, if there's a reasonable match between the subject and that trait. In order for someone to be labeled as a psychopath, they would need to score at least a 25 out of a maximum 40. In some places, it's at least a score of 30. Laura used all of the info she'd acquired about John Meehan after speaking with those who knew him best, and she walked through the assessment. Some of the traits that are on the checklist include superficial charm, manipulative and conning, lack of guilt, parasitic lifestyle, pathological liar, sexual promiscuity, history of juvenile delinquency, and impulsivity. Laura revealed that based on her assessment, John Meehan scored a 40. He had scored the maximum of two on every single trait. By early 2016, John was now harassing Liz, Deb's daughter. He knew the two of them had reconciled. He'd been tracking their movements. And he felt that threat that the protectors of Deborah were coming back in to ruin his endgame. And Liz was the biggest threat of all, the one that didn't like him from the moment she laid eyes on him. He would text her that Deb didn't care about her, that if Liz jumped off a building, he and Deborah would be happy. He once texted her a photo of her birth certificate with his spit on it, and she texted him back with a Google image of a pile of shit. He knew he was losing control as Deborah was gaining back her voice, safely planning her exit. What do you do in a horror movie when you see the killer, but he doesn't yet see you? He hasn't yet realized that you've noticed his presence in your home. You don't run screaming out the front door. You slowly sneak away, making sure the coast is clear. As John continued to lose that grip of control, his threats increased. He reminded Deborah that they were married. Everything she had, well, half of it was his. He told her how he'd destroy her and her family if she ever tried to leave him, In a pathetic attempt to get back at her for not giving in to all of his financial demands, John tried to file a complaint with the Irvine police, claiming Deborah had hit him. It didn't work, and later the police pressed charges against John for filing a false police report. Look back in those early days of their relationship, how he kept talking about love at first sight, begging Deborah to make him the happiest man on earth. He had to pin her down quick before she caught on, and he did just that. Now it was time to hold on to it. He wasn't going to let her go now. She filed for divorce, and John, desperate as ever, began grasping at straws, threatening to send intimate photos of her to all the contacts in her phone. And then he sent them to her family members. He wrote scathing reviews of her business online, calling her a cheat, a crook, and threatened to kill her and her children. But Deb was firm. She cut off the communication with him at the advice of her lawyer and officially went into hiding. Deborah Newell was afraid for her life. She had endured nearly two years of coercive control and now was receiving dangerous threats. She cut off communication with John and began living out of different hotels, careful to never stay in one place for too long. She wore wigs, dark glasses, changed up her personal style to become someone else, all to lose the unhinged man who was trying to get to her. 
Liz was afraid, too. So much of his anger was directed toward her. A restraining order was filed, but finding John was difficult, and he wasn't served with it. Deborah couldn't shake that feeling that John was going to do something when he had the chance. Meanwhile, Deborah's youngest daughter, Tara, who had been living in Vegas, was going through a breakup with her boyfriend, Tony. She moved to California with the help of her mom and into an apartment complex with a ton of security, the Coronado, near Newport Beach. Tara had already experienced trauma in her life, vivid nightmares, PTSD from a previous abusive relationship, and she often had friends stay over with her just to keep from being alone. John had never mentioned Tara in his threats. He probably saw her as the least of his worries. But now, she was near the rest of her family, her beloved Australian shepherd Cash, as her roommate. Now she could easily become one of John's targets. It was June 2016. Deborah, eager to end things without further conflict, confronted John in person at the house in Henderson, Nevada, and offered him, at the advice of her lawyer, money, a payoff. She gave him a check, told him to fix up the house for himself, and that they'd work things out. He was frail, the drugs completely taking over, and he cried, told Deborah he had cancer, and begged her to stay. Still with that soft side for John, she spent the night on a blow-up mattress in the living room. But when she returned home the next day, she realized her mistake when her attorney told her no judge was going to grant a permanent restraining order now. So she texted John that he should accept the annulment and offer up a dollar amount so she could finally move on. But he didn't want some measly check. He wanted it all. And now he had a gun. With Tara living nearby, John began sending her messages via Facebook, trying to drag her into his threats and his games. She rarely checked Facebook and didn't engage with him. She was going about her life, working at Rebel Run Canine Suites, a doggy daycare in Newport Beach, and while winding down at night, found comfort in her favorite TV show, The Walking Dead. There was something about the hit series that captivated her. She'd tell her mom that if there was ever a zombie apocalypse, she'd be prepared. One day at work, Deborah looked out the window and saw that her jaguar was missing. She knew why. He must have stolen it. He wasn't some slick criminal mastermind. John was caught on surveillance video, and the car was found later. It had been set on fire, rather poorly. The fire had extinguished itself quickly. Still, the police were slow to act. They questioned John. He lied. And even with it all caught on tape, nothing happened. And so it wasn't until he lit my car on fire that we realized he had stepped up his game. And they were only looking at, I was working also with a forensic psychologist. And he was telling me, don't worry about your kids. The end game is you. He wants to kill you. Um, if he can't have you, he wants you dead. Um, and he gets your money. Uh, he also said that the kids, if he kills one of the kids, he loses everything. If he kills you, he thinks that he has, you know, all this money. Deborah had blocked him months earlier, taken her Tesla back, and now it was just sit and wait. For what? For him to do something more dangerous? Liz was hyper aware of her surroundings, and on the night of August 19th, 2016, spotted John in a white Camry outside of her building. He drove off when he realized he'd been spotted. She knew he was lying in wait, waiting for Liz or Deborah to walk by so he could pounce and kill. Liz feared he could go to Tara's building next, so she and her friend drove to the Coronado and looked around. They didn't see John or the Camry, but they walked up to Tara's apartment to check that she was okay. Not wanting to wake her sister up at the late hour, Liz just listened at the door and heard Cash inside, softly growling from the other side of the door. 
Liz left and called Tara the next day, warned her to be on the lookout for John, and she described the car he was in. The predator was circling. I was partying a lot. I was just going to different resources because I needed to convince myself that this wasn't happening. I needed to numb my brain and convince it wasn't happening at the time. So I was just in a really bad place before it all happened because he was terrorizing us and all. At work on Friday, August 19th, Tara got a strange call from a potential customer, a man with what sounded like a fake French accent. He mentioned that he'd brought in two Rhodesian Ridgebacks once for grooming. Tara found that questionable. She'd have remembered that. And the whole exchange sounded off as the man confirmed that Tara would be there at work the next day until 5.30. It was now Saturday, August 20th, 2016. Tara was finishing up her shift at work, thinking about her plans for the evening, tickets to see Jason Aldean in concert at the Irvine Meadows Amphitheater. She hosed down the cages, her rubber rain boots on, and called to Cash to come with her. The pair got into her car, ready to head home. The Coronado had all that security that put Deborah's mind at ease. Tara was safe, but what Deb didn't know was that the gated entrance was broken on that day. It was about 5.15 p.m., a sunny California afternoon, when Tara parked her car in space SR-423, right next to a Dodge Dart, in the rooftop parking garage of her building. A man was standing in front of the trunk of the Dodge, looking through a backpack, she gathered her things and called for Cash to jump out of her Prius and follow her up to her apartment. As Tara walked through the parking lot, that man came up right next to her, put his arm around her waist tightly and said, Do you remember me? She tried to get away as she instantly realized it was John Meehan. With Deborah in hiding, Liz avoiding him, Dirty John had finally gotten close to someone. He put his hand over her mouth and she bit hard and began to struggle to get away from him. He wasn't giving up and Tara felt something hitting her like he was punching her upper body. It was happening quickly and what Tara didn't realize in that moment was that John was holding a Dell taco bag and inside was a knife he was using to stab her. She put her arms in front of her chest to protect herself and used her purse as a shield. In what must have felt like an eternity, but was about 15 seconds, Tara tried to free herself as John kept his grip on her and continued to stab as Cash was at his heels barking. Tara fell to the ground, with John falling on top of her. She was on her back, and he knelt in front of her, stabbing anywhere he could while Cash bit his legs. Tara had forgotten to change out of her rain boots before leaving work. And she positioned herself to do bicycle pedals, kicking to keep the knife from penetrating her. She managed to kick John's wrist, and the knife went flying and ended up in a perfect position next to her right hand, the handle facing her. Petite, soft-spoken, 25-year-old Tara didn't waste a moment. The adrenaline running, she grabbed the knife and stabbed John in the right shoulder. She didn't stop. It was kill or be killed. She stabbed John in his back, his arms, his chest. And then, doing what she'd learned from watching her favorite show, Tara took the knife and stabbed John Meehan for the 13th time, right in the left eye. The zombie kill. The only way to stop a zombie? To kill their brain. He was lying on top of her now, and Tara pushed him off and managed to get away, her upper body covered in both hers and John's blood. It was 14-year-old Skylar Sepulveda, a lifeguard in training, who was looking out the window of her Coronado apartment and saw a man attacking a young woman with a knife. She told her mother to call 911 and without hesitation, 
grabbed a beach towel, and ran barefoot down to the parking lot. By the time she got down there, John was lying still, and Tara was panicked. Skylar comforted Tara until help arrived. This is the part in the horror movie when you think the bad guy has finally been stopped, but of course, the bad guy slowly rises, just as the protagonist has their back turned, breathing a sigh of relief. Tara wasn't relieved. She was convinced he was going to get back up and kill her. She called Deborah and told her, I'm really, really sorry, Mom. I think I just killed your husband. But he wasn't dead yet. He was still breathing after paramedics responded and resuscitated him. Deborah raced to the Coronado, and Tara was taken by ambulance, with Cash at her side, to the hospital where she underwent surgery for a stab wound to her chest. Tara had a long road to recovery ahead of her, both physically and emotionally, and was fortunate enough not to have suffered any internal injuries. A lot of things were on her side that day. Forgetting to change out of her boots protected her from additional stab wounds. Her buddy Cash protecting her, and that knife that seemed to fly in the air, almost magically landing next to her right hand. And a hero watching, Skylar. Dirty John Meehan was in the ICU in a vegetative state. Deborah, as his wife, had the responsibility of making his medical choices for him, a responsibility she didn't want, so she signed them over to one of John's sisters, who had joined her in the hospital. John was finally harmless, as he lay there in the hospital bed, bandages over his left eye, Cash's bite marks on his legs, breathing with the help of life support. He was thin, ravaged by drugs, and hanging on by a thread. His sisters and Deborah decided that it was best to remove John from life support, as doctors advised he would never come out of the vegetative state. They turned off the machine, and Deb, always the empath, held his hand and told him it was okay to go. She didn't think anyone should die alone. It took him a while, but John Meehan died on August 24, 2016, four days after attacking Tara. Deborah gets asked a lot what she thinks John was setting out to do that day. Why go after Tara? Part of me feels that he was going to kidnap her to get to me, but things went wrong when she reacted immediately and it became self-defense for him. So because Tara was able to immediately go into flight mode and fight mode, and um, she even says that if one second were to have been spared, that it would have been her life, not his. But everything happened so quickly. I feel that God was part of it. <laughs> the reign of terror was finally over, but the healing was only beginning. I felt compelled to reach out to Tara Newell in 2018 when I first heard of this case. I'd watched Dateline, The Women and Dirty John, and was so blown away that I messaged her on social media immediately after the show ended. It was the only time I'd ever reached out to a victim, a stranger online. This was long before I had started a podcast. I wasn't looking for an interview or a comment. I simply felt like I needed her to know how in awe I was of her, of Cash, as I bawled like a baby in my living room. When, years later, I invited Tara onto my show, she was happy to accept. Talking to her was really easy. I fangirled a bit, of course, and we shared a love of our dogs. But the last thing I wanted to do was re-traumatize her. I didn't ask her to talk about that day in August of 2016. If it had come up naturally, that would be fine, but it didn't. And that's all right. We ended up talking more about her healing and how she's helped others heal to find their voice. I do a trauma life coaching and toxic relationship recovery life coaching because a lot of the times when you're getting out of the, well, all the times when you're getting out of these toxic relationships, you need 
a recovery work. Whether it's like you go inside, you do that work with yourself, you go to a therapist or you go to a life coach. I really try to teach them what happened in that relationship, teach them a little bit about narcissism. If they were with someone that they think might be a narcissism or narcissist qualities, you know, but I don't diagnose because I'm not a therapist. So, and unless you have that person in your chair and you're having a couple sessions with them here and there, you really cannot diagnose these people without, you know, knowing like qualities and knowing like them in certain situations and whatnot. So it's not fair to like say, oh, you were with a narcissist, but educate them on what narcissism is and what narcissistic qualities are and how to avoid that. It's not a straight line to healing. Sometimes there are setbacks. I And I went out to the bars and someone grabbed me by the waist and I got re-triggered. So I had to go back into therapy and it kind of like offset me for a moment. Um, Just because when triggers happen, it's so hard to kind of not be triggered again, unless you have completely rewired your nervous system. But I feel like that takes consistently consistency and practice. Um, so I feel like the healing is always a continuous journey, but for now I have really gotten to a great place where I'm able to work with dogs again and also take on other people's traumas and hold space for it and help them through their journey. I don't know what I would have done if he would have lived and she would have died. I don't know if I could have ever forgiven myself. I deal with a lot of guilt because she does have PTSD and it's changed her life. But I keep saying, Tara, we've got to take something bad and turn it into something good. If you take anything away from this case, from the trauma that Deborah and Tara and their family have gone through, what John's first wife, Tanya, went through, her family, along with the countless other women John Meehan had manipulated— If you take anything away, I hope it's this. These are victims, and not everything you see on a dramatized series is fact. We all have tons of personality traits, life experiences, tragedies, triumphs that make up who we are. Everything from our DNA to the characteristics and habits we've picked up through our days on this earth all lead us to who we are. So many of us are seeking connections, even, dare I say, the sometimes unobtainable happiness. This isn't simply a cautionary tale of be careful who you meet online. You don't even have to be on a dating site to become a target. You could be waking up in a hospital bed to your supposed anesthesiologist or taking a load off in a bar after a long day at nursing school. And the villain is there, and he knows more about you than you realize. This can happen to anyone. And the moment we start assigning conditions to situations, we take away the victim's voice. The villain has practiced and practiced and studied. The target, the prey, is nowhere near as prepared. Look for a bonus episode coming soon. I sat down with Tanya Sells Bales, John's first wife, another absolutely lovely woman who just so happened to be one of Dirty John's victims. We'll talk about his past and how Tanya uncovered more shocking revelations about John. One of the biggest ones she discovered years after his death. And then, in a couple weeks, I'll return with a new case. If you want to connect with Tara Newell online, here's her info. Yeah. So if you guys want to follow me on Instagram, I'm most consistent on there. I am Tara, T-E-R-R-A, last name Newell, N-E-W-E-L-L. And then I also have my Tara's pup page. If you are in Orange County and need a pet sitter or a dog walker, uh, let me know. And I also take on coaching. On my website, TaraNewellSurvival.com.
And to connect with Deborah Newell. If anyone wants to reach out or has any questions or needs help, I'm Deborah Ambrose Newell on Facebook and Instagram. I also have a email address, Deborah N at ambrosiainteriors.com. And I'm willing to help anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Method and Madness. This is an independent podcast, so if you'd like to show your support, you can leave a five-star rating on Spotify or a five-star review on Apple Podcast or on Podchaser. It makes the show more visible for new listeners. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook as well. To chat or discuss the episode, reach out to me, Method and Madness Pod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. It is sound edited by Mo and Spo. Thank you to Deborah and Tara Newell for coming on and sharing your stories. Thank you to Faith and John of the Mission Rejected podcast and to Rohan for lending their voices for the theme music. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast that discusses dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.